tonight I get to cover um, one additional category of psalms that we haven't covered yet, confident psalms. And then to supplement that, we get to kind of look at what's a debated category of psalms, the Messianic psalms, um, and then also looking at how Messianic psalms work as an umbrella over all of the different types of psalms. And so those are the two things we're going to be looking at tonight. And um, some of you may have been here for the other three lessons um, that we've had on Sunday night. Some of you, this might be your first night, but I hope as I'm speaking about these different types of psalms that the distinctions become clear for you. They don't become jumbled together because as Todd was saying, you begin to see the different characteristics of these psalms, the beauty and the different types of these songs, the emotions these psalms uh, evoke from the reader. And as you do that, you begin to appreciate more what those psalms are intended to do, um, how we use those for worship, both personally, corporately, how we use those for prayer. Um, And so I hope to do that tonight with confident psalms and messianic psalms. Thankfully, um, for me, the confident psalms are pretty easy to define. As we get into messianic psalms, that's going to get a little bit uh, more slippery, but for confident psalms, these are a pretty clear-cut genre of psalms. So as you open up the Psalter and you start reading through, I hope after we get through this, you're able to say, hey, here's a confident psalm. There's another confident psalm. Um, and we'll see what that looks like. A confident psalm is one written in a time of personal trouble. Personal is important. But with unwavering assurance in God's ability to deliver. Let me say that again. A confident psalm is one written in a time of personal trouble but with unwavering assurance in God's ability to deliver. A good way for us to start start to distinguish what confident psalms are is to see them in distinction to laments and thanksgiving psalms. If you guys have been here uh, for the duration of these, you'll kind of remember what laments are, remember what thanksgivings are. If you haven't been here, I'll try to place confident psalms on this spectrum between laments and thanksgivings. So to remind you, on one end of the spectrum, we have laments. These are brutally honest psalms. They're written in a time of personal trouble, just like confident psalms are. But laments are full of honest questioning and wrestling with God's character and his promises in times of pain and hardship. And so you will see the psalmist questioning, God, where are you in the midst of this trouble? Those are laments. And although laments usually end with an upbeat note, the general tone, the general emotion that laments evoke is somber, it's sad, it's disquieting. You don't end with a sense of peace and comfort from a lament psalm. It's open-ended. So the assurance and optimism found in confidence psalms that we're going to talk about is not nearly as apparent in laments. Now on the other end of that spectrum, we have thanksgiving psalms. These are also written about personal times of trouble, but these are written after the fact. Thanksgivings are full of joy and celebration over God's deliverance from pain and hardship. And the general tone of Thanksgiving Psalms is joyful. God has brought me out of this difficult time, and I can celebrate that in writing a song. So confidence Psalms, as you probably figured out, fall right in the middle of this spectrum between laments and Thanksgiving Psalms. The author has come out of the confusion, the disquiet, the unrest, the turmoil of laments, is now being able to express confidence in God and his character and his ability to deliver, but the author has not yet moved to the other side where the pain is past. They're out of trial, and they can look back and express thanksgiving. Laments look forward with eyes of faith, and they struggle to see God's character and purpose in difficult times. 
Confident psalms, on the other hand, look forward with eyes of faith and see clearly God's character and purpose. Thanksgiving psalms look back with eyes of faith and rejoice to see God's deliverance out of difficult times. We'll get to some specific characteristics of confident psalms that really make them stand out from the pack, but as you're reading, the main thing that you're going to see with confident psalms, they don't necessarily have a specific structure. They don't have a specific way that they're begun. Confident psalms just give you this overwhelming feeling of confidence and assurance in what God is going to do. And so a good hermeneutical question, not just to ask when you're approaching a confident psalm, but a good question to ask when you're approaching any psalm is, what emotions is the author stirring up in me as I read this psalm? Again, if you're reading a psalm and you kind of come away like, well, that was a little bit depressing. I'm not coming away with much confidence in God after that. There's kind of this open-ended feeling, this disquieted feeling. You're probably reading a lament. If you come away just really jacked up and you're like, man, the Lord really brought that person through a time of trouble, you've probably read a Thanksgiving psalm. If you're reading one and you come away and you're like, you know what, the psalmist seems like they're in some trouble, but their confidence with God just doesn't shake. It's just steady all the way through. You're probably reading a confident psalm. Hopefully that helps you narrow down a little bit of... um, from all these different genres of psalms, you can kind of narrow down that way as you begin to think of what emotions in me are evoked by this psalm. And as we've already said, confident psalms should leave you with a feeling of optimism and confidence. But as we've looked at these different types of psalms, there are other types of psalms that could leave you feeling the same way as well. We've talked about hymns, we've talked about thanksgiving psalms, even some wisdom psalms and divine kingship psalms. You could leave and say, hey, I've got a lot of confidence in God's character. So what more specific characteristics can we see that makes a confident psalm a confident psalm? Firstly, confident psalms are written out of personal trouble. This is going to distinguish confident psalms from a lot of the other genres. It's a personal experience, not a redemptive historical experience, something that's happened in the history of Israel that's being referred to. God is, you know, we're in the midst of Egypt. God, we we are crying out to you. We're confident you're going to deliver us from Egypt. That's a different type. Confident psalms come from a very personal experience. Now again, this personal trouble could, you could be reading it and say, well, you know, there's personal trouble. This could be a lament or the personal trouble. I can't tell if it's in the past or not. This could be a Thanksgiving psalm. A question you can ask is, where in the experience of personal trouble is the psalmist? Are they right in the midst of it? Are they kind of in the middle of that? Are they moving out of it? Are they past it? And as you begin to answer that question, you can see where you fall on that spectrum that I talked about. Secondly, and this is a big one, confident psalms frequently picture God as a refuge. And so just for some examples, Psalm 16, 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 62, 2, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. In Psalm 91, 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. Thirdly, confidence psalms will invite others to share in that confidence. Even though the author is sharing out of a personal experience, um, sometimes they will say something like in Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So there's a teaching element to confidence psalms. Kind of a note on that, though, is this is not a universal feature. The psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 23, doesn't have this uh, invitation to share in the confidence, but it's kind of implicit 
in what's being said. Finally, and most importantly, as we've already talked about, one of the most, the most important feature of a confident psalm is an unwavering confidence in God's ability to deliver. And as we'll see in Psalm 23, this can be expressed in a number of different ways. But as you're reading through this psalm, you see over and over and over again the psalmist claiming God's promises with confidence, knowing that these things are going to be true. A few uh, psalms that highlight these qualities are Psalms 16, Psalm 23, Psalm 27, Psalm 62, and Psalm 91. These are kind of clear-cut psalms of confidence that you can look at if you want to kind of get a feel for these a little bit better. And we're going to look at Psalm 23 in just a minute. You've got it on your sheet. But before we do, do that, one of the things that we've tried to do in this series is connect these different genres of psalms and how they proclaim Christ. Um, We're going to get into that a lot more with the Messianic Psalms, but a question we can ask is, as we're reading Confident Psalms specifically, how do Confident Psalms point to Jesus? Firstly, Confident Psalms point to Jesus as the source of our confidence. Again, Confident Psalms point to Jesus as the source of our confidence. When Paul is talking about his ability to minister to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, he recognizes that Jesus himself is the source of his confidence to minister. He's defending himself against the Corinthians. They're kind of just peppering him with questions. And when he rests his ministerial confidence, it's on Christ. He says in 3.4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Paul doesn't have to feel um, like he's being tossed about by the waves because of the questioning of the Corinthians. He can be confident in his calling to minister to them. The confident Psalms express unwavering assurance that God will deliver his people out of the pains and hardships of this life. And what other, who other than Jesus provides God's people with such confidence? That is the basis of our confidence. That's the firmness of our confidence. That's what we're going to see tonight in Psalm 23 as we read through that. David is ultimately looking towards Christ as his shepherd, and we're going to see that unpacked a little bit. But this shadowy sense of God's faithfulness at all costs that the authors of the Old Testament see, they know God's going to be faithful, they're confident in that. We have this in full-bodied expression in God's work for his people in Christ. And so as we read confident psalms, we know that ultimately they're pointing to Jesus in that way, that he's the basis and the source of our confidence. Secondly, confident psalms point to Jesus because confident psalms were sung by Jesus We see Jesus in his humiliation, taking on flesh, experiencing temptation, experiencing loss, being betrayed, being sentenced to death, being crucified. He experienced dark personal trials. And it's these dark personal trials in the Psalms that we see that give rise to confident Psalms. Certainly we can read confident Psalms knowing that Jesus has gone before us in difficult times singing these same songs. And certainly we can read confident Psalms with confidence knowing that Jesus is presently interceding for us before the throne of God in difficult times with songs just like these. He is confident in the promises of God for us. We're going to move on to a specific example of a confident psalm. So if you'll look at the bottom of your sheet, can I have somebody read that out for me, Psalm 23? He volunteers. Darren? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right. Thinking back on some of those characteristics of confident psalms that we talked about, can anybody point out some things in this psalm that you would say, hey, this fits that characteristic. We see a characteristic of a confident psalm right here. Can you point any of those out in Psalm 23? personal expression. He talks about, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and then further down, um, he talks about, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So it's not only personal, but you see that there's some turmoil here as well. Definitely fitting uh, with the conventions of a confident psalm. Anything else you guys see in here that would fit with the conventions of of a confident psalm? Absolutely, yeah. So he starts with this visual of God as, as his shepherd, and you see throughout how com- comforting this is. Um, and so it fits that God as refuge type language. Anything else you guys see? The goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy. Absolutely. Yeah, so we see summed up in that, the goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Throughout this psalm, there's just this unending flow of confidence in what God is going to do for the psalmist. And what was interesting for me as I was studying this was, if you would pause after the first three verses, this could fit a lot of different genres of psalms. There's no personal trouble in sight. This could be a hymn in some sense. This could be a thanksgiving in another sense. There's a lot of things this could be just expressing praise and thanks to the Lord. But as you get into verse 4 and he starts talking about the valley of the shadow of death, that he's in the presence of his enemies, you begin to see that this is coming out of personal trouble. And it's surprising, as I am familiar with Psalm 23, I've read Psalm 23 a number of times, that's never struck me before. It's always those notes of confidence. I almost overlook the fact that David is in the midst of a difficult time right here. Um, And so it's through that difficult time that you see God acting as a shepherd um, working with David and, uh, and, and working with him in those ways. Um, what I want to do is uh, talk a little bit about Psalm 23, but then I also want to connect Psalm 23 um, to the New Testament a little bit. And so keep Psalm 23 open in front of you there. In the first verse, we get this imagery of God as shepherd. Uh, and this is imagery that stays consistent throughout the psalm. Um, the, only, the only way it really breaks in the middle of this psalm is where he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I don't know of any sheep that usually eat at a table or who have their head anointed with oil or who have a cup for any purpose. Um, but other than that, this Shepherd and sheep analogy is kept consistently throughout Psalm 23. And what a vivid picture of God um, and who he is to David, what he's doing for David, the confidence that David can feel because of what God has done for him. Um, And so he just keeps this consistent picture of the shepherd and the sheep analogy all the way throughout this psalm. And so I was thinking through 
how does this psalm point forward to Christ? How does this psalm encourage us? Um, I couldn't help but think of John 10, and so you guys can turn there um, if you'd like to. And starting at verse 7, he says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so you see in John 10, Jesus taking over this imagery, this pastoral imagery of a shepherd and sheep. And as he begins this teaching, he's calling himself the gate, the way for the sheep to enter into the flock, the way for the sheep to come under the care of the shepherd. The shepherd. But as he does that, and as he continues this, the language shifts a little bit in verse 11. He goes from being the gate to something else. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid, lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. We see Jesus taking over this imagery that's attributed to God in the psalm, taking over this imagery of being the good shepherd. And there's such a rich abundance of, um, of the blessings that we see that Christ offers to us as the good shepherd. In the psalm, we see specific things like, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It's these notions of peace and comfort and provision. Then we see in a time of, of trouble, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We see the protection, the guidance that comes from the good shepherd. And then finally, we see at the very end here, this permanence of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, that the sheep, so to speak, is coming to pasture forever in one place with protection and provision. And so we see Christ take over that language. And a lot of these same things are picked up in John 10 where Christ is providing protection for his sheep. He's keeping the wolves away from them. His sheep know him. He, he's guiding them. He's protecting them. But the thing that we see, excuse me, the thing that we see added in John 10 is the extent to which Christ is going to go to protect his sheep. In Psalm 23, we see the shepherd using his rod and his staff. In John 10, we see the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. In the valley of the shadow of death, we see Christ actually taking on death for his sheep, dying in their place, dying at the hand of their enemies so that they can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Obviously, the, um, the main application that as believers we take from Psalm 23, unlike, unlike some other psalms and a psalm that we're going to look at in a minute, this isn't a king who's writing a psalm that's only the experience of that king. This is David writing as one of God's people about the experiences of God's people being sheep to the shepherd. And so unlike that, we can take a lot of these comforts of the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd directly onto us to encourage us, to build us up, to spur us on in our faith. 
And so what a comfort it is that we have a shepherd, that we've been provided a shepherd that will not only provide green grass and still waters and provision for us, that provides a rod and a staff to keep us on a path going in the right direction, but that we actually now have a shepherd who will lay down his life in our place. What a comfort that is for us. And certainly a comfort for us as we read Psalm 23 and understand that this psalm is pointing forward to Jesus in that way. That this shepherd Lord of Psalm 23 is eventually going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just want to encourage you with that psalm as you read that, as you meditate on it, understanding that David is very much in the midst of personal trial, tribulation, turmoil. I don't know how you get into a worse place than the valley of the shadow of death. That sounds pretty bad to me. But even as he's in the midst of that, he's expressing this unwavering confidence. And it's because he knows the object of his faith, the object of his confidence, that he can express that in such a consistent way. And I want to encourage you in that same way of looking to God in the midst of personal times of trial and trouble. As we do that, as we understand what he's done for us in Jesus, as we understand that God has provided for us in Christ a shepherd who lays down his life for us, that we can have confidence in the midst of personal trouble as well. Um, what a, com- a comfort that is for us um, as we think about being a sheep in God's flock. We're going to continue on to, uh, to Messianic Psalms. That's confident Psalms. Um, we're going to continue on to Messianic Psalms. And this, as I said, is a little bit less distinct, a little bit less of a clear-cut genre than confident psalms. Confident psalms, we can say, here's what makes up a confident psalm. Here's some very typical conventions that you can see when you're reading through the psalms. And if they fit these few markers, they're definitely a confident psalm. Go with that. Messianic psalms don't fit that way. And so the first question you guys see on your sheet under messianic psalms What is a Messianic psalm? And so for the purposes of tonight, I'm going to define a Messianic psalm with a big M as a psalm used in the New Testament to specifically refer to Jesus Christ in one way or another, his person and his work. So if there's a psalm taken over by the authors of the New Testament that refer specifically to Jesus, and we're going to look at what some of those are, Those are Messianic Psalms with a big M. These are ones that biblical scholars agree on. These are all pointing forward to Christ in a very obvious and plain way. Some of the agreed upon Messianic Psalms are Psalm 2, which we're going to look at in a few minutes. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, and Psalm 110. These are ones the New Testament takes over consistently in language about Christ. But before we move on to a specific Messianic Psalms, I want to address the question of, are all of the Psalms Messianic? And I've got this with a lower M, uh, lowercase m, um, to distinguish it from the uppercase M of the other Messianic Psalms. So uh, to talk about this, let's turn to Luke 24. It's actually one of my favorite passages, and um, I didn't just bend uh, this talk to get around to Luke 24 somehow. Um, this, is, this does have a purpose. Um, but this is one of my favorite passages, talking about how Jesus understood the Old Testament. And because of how Jesus understood the Old Testament, how the apostles understood the Old Testament, and then by extension, how we should understand the Old Testament as well. 
So as we get to Luke 24, 27, um, Jerry preached on this not too long ago. We remember the disciples. There's a couple of disciples that are on their way to a village named Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. Um, and I'm always jealous of these guys that they get to hear Jesus do this first lesson in biblical theology. Um, I would love to be there for that. But when we get down to verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. Again, this is the New Testament talking about scriptures. It's talking about the books of the Old Testament. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Then it continues on. If you jump to verse 44, this is a different appearance of Jesus to his disciples. It says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And he continues on from there. I would contend from these verses that Jesus understood the Psalms messianically in a lowercase m type of way. And the caution that we always want to make, we'll get into this in the next section a little bit more, the caution you always want to make is as we understand the Old Testament as a whole and the Psalms specifically as pointing forward to Jesus, you always want to be careful to not just overturn every rock and look at every verse and try to figure out how that specific verse is talking about Jesus. It doesn't really work that way per se. You want to be much more cautious in doing that. But I think Jesus in these passages is, is very clear that the end goal, what the Old Testament passages, including the Psalms, are pointing forward to are Jesus. And it's not just one Psalm or four Psalms as we have here. It's all of them, 150 of these Psalms that in, in many different ways are pointing forward to Jesus. So the natural question from that is, how do we read the Psalms messianically? How do we do this responsibly without looking under every rock to try and find Christ? Well, the first thing is, is this passage referenced in the New Testament? And if it is, how do the New Testament authors talk about this psalm? That's the easiest way as we get into Psalm 2. It was kind of a cheat sheet because the apostles provide a commentary on Psalm 2 for us. Um, And so it provides a, a really clear grid of how we're supposed to understand that psalm. Another thing I want to encourage you with, these are just kind of different ways to approach the Psalms to think through. And and really what you'll end up having to try to do is not just say, oh, this is the easiest way to understand this talking about Jesus. So this must be what it's talking about. I'm going to move on to the next Psalm. What you really have to end up doing as you're reading the Old Testament, as you're reading the Psalms specifically, is knowing the person and work of Jesus Christ, and, and I'll unpack that a little bit, knowing the person and work of Jesus Christ, looking at a passage in the Old Testament, holding it up to the light, or one of the Psalms as we're talking about today, and looking at it through the different facets of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as you do that, things will become clear in that passage for you to understand about Christ. I don't know if that mate was was very clear, but to continue on in this, in regard to the person of Christ, you're looking at the Psalms and you're saying, in any way does this Psalm relate to the humanity or to the deity of Christ? Now you look at something like Psalm 22. Again, this is a psalm that Jesus cries out from the cross. So this is one that we say, absolutely, this is a Messianic psalm with a capital M. But very clearly, you see some things referenced in Psalm 22 talking about the humanity of Christ, his suffering on the cross specifically. You can also think, does this refer to 
the deity of Christ in any sense. And Psalm 23 might be a good example of that. Psalm 23 is not a Messianic psalm with a capital M, a Messianic psalm with a, a lowercase m. But in Psalm 23, we see the good shepherd portrayed in the Old Testament a thousand years before Christ comes around and says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the person David was talking about. So we see his deity or a facet of his deity that he's the good shepherd in that psalm. Some other grids or some other lenses to look through the psalms at is in regard to, regard to the work of Christ. Does this psalm in particular talk about Christ as the prophet who speaks the word of God, who fulfills the word of God, who teaches God's people, who leads God's people into wisdom? Does this psalm speak in regard to Christ's office as a priest? Do we see Christ's priestly work represented in the psalm in any way? Does it talk about Christ interceding for his people? Does this psalm talk about Christ laying down his life for people? Or does this psalm talk in regards to kingship? We talked about royal psalms last week, divine kingship songs. These are big in the psalms. In some way is either talking about the divine king or a human king pointing forward to Jesus in some way. We're going to see an example of one of those royal psalms in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was written talking about a human king. But as we'll see very plainly, the interpretation of that doesn't stop with one of David's descendants. It points forward to one of his descendants in the long term, to Jesus. Another thing to kind of keep in mind is, is this talking about Christ and his humiliation? Is this talking about Christ and his exaltation? So as we think through the person and work of Jesus, what we've been taught from the New Testament, and we spin that psalm around and look, look at it through different facets, hopefully those things begin to be clear to us and we can say, oh, this is referring to Christ's cross work. This is referring to Christ's intercession on behalf of believers. This is referring to Christ as a king. We're going to see that in a minute. A lot of the speakers unpack specifically how these different genres represent Christ. Again, referring to Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is this lament being cried out. Obviously, Christ embodies that lament on the cross. But all of the different genres of psalms that we've looked at point to Jesus in one way or another. I want to finish by looking specifically at Psalm 2. This is a great example of a psalm that we can interpret messianically with a capital M, but also messianically with a lowercase m. And it's, it's, parts of it are given license to us by the New Testament to say this specifically is what this verse is talking about. And there's other parts of that psalm where you can't help but say, this is pointing forward to the work of Christ in this specific way. So we'll take a look at that. Um, and will somebody read Psalm 2 for me? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you. <clears throat> it's important as we as we begin to look at Psalm 2, I don't know about for you guys, but as I hear that psalm, I'm, I'm hearing it so much through the ears and, and seeing it so much through the eyes of the New Testament. It's almost hard to read this psalm and not think of it messianically. It's hard to hear about God's anointed, the king on Zion, God's son, and not think of Christ. But initially, um, the consensus is this is a coronation psalm. This is a psalm recited as a king is, is stepping forth to take his throne. And these are the things that are being spoken uh, in Psalm 2. And, and so you see these things of you've got the kings, you've got the rulers setting themselves up against God's king and against the Lord himself. But you see, the, you see the Lord speaking confidently. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And one of the things I find interesting as you go throughout Psalm 2 is you eventually find it hard to distinguish between what God is carrying out and what his anointed is carrying out. Because initially it says that um, God speaks to them in his wrath, and then eventually you see near the end that kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is kindled quickly. And so you see these things that begin being talked about with God, eventually being talked about by the anointed, and there's this really fine distinction between God and his king that he's setting up over Israel. But as I say that, that this is initially written about and written for a human king ascending to the throne, even as we're reading that, there's so many things in the psalm that don't seem to quite fit perfectly with a human king. These promises made, these things spoken about, the rule and authority of this human king don't seem to fit what we know of any human king from the Old Testament. And so as much as this would be a really cool thing to be read at a coronation, in my mind, there's not necessarily hyperbole. I don't know if that's the right word, but I don't know of any king of Israel that was able to say, um, you know, the nations are my inheritance, the ends of the earth are my possession, that he's going to break his enemies with a rod of iron. Those things just really didn't pan out for any of the kings of Israel. But before we get into that and some ways that it, it fulfills uh, or points forward to Christ messianically with a lowercase m, let's look at a couple of the passages in the New Testament that reference this psalm. And so the first one, we're just going to read this real briefly. not going to spend a lot of time on this one. Um, but from Matthew 3, at the, uh, the baptism of Jesus. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see God placing this name of Son of God that we see in Psalm 2, placing that on his Son, and that's interesting because this isn't an apostle, this isn't a New Testament writer that's reading Psalm 2 onto Jesus. This is God himself saying, that guy from Psalm 2, this is him at his baptism being made very, very plain. Turn over to Acts for me, Acts chapter 13. 
This is the Apostle Paul using the same passage, talking about a different part of Christ's life. Acts 13, starting in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, I find that interesting in Psalm 2. It's talking about kings and rulers setting themselves up against God's anointed. And here we have these rulers in Jerusalem. They did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled, uh, fulfilled them by con- condemning him. And though they found him in no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news of what, what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Paul is using the same passage that God uses at Jesus' baptism. And so at Jesus' baptism, you see these kind of royal undertones, but, but Saul uses this later. Jesus ascending to his throne, being raised from the dead. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so you, again, you see Psalm 2 fleshed out, where you see these rulers setting themselves up against God and against his anointed and how they carried out those plans. But you also see Jesus ascending, being raised from the dead, going up to God in heaven. And as we see in Psalm 2, the outcome of that, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, this is something that no king of Israel, no descendant of David other than Christ could have claimed these things as these definitely took place during my reign. These things are being talked about because they're talked about by me. Um, the book of Revelation. seems like such an echo of this passage of the nations being Christ's inheritance and the ends of the earth, his possession. In Revelation 7, after I looked... After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice in this throne room scene. You could almost import this back into Psalm 2. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. And so you see this great multitude in Revelation 7 from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before this throne that we see all the way back in Psalm 2. This king who sits on Zion, God's holy hill, and the nations are coming as his possession. The author of Revelation doesn't point back to Psalm 2 specifically, but I think you can read that and see how Psalm 2 is pointing forward to Christ sitting down on his throne with believers from every tribe and nation and tongue surrounding him. In, in honoring him and glorifying him. 
It's interesting to see Psalm 2 looked at messianically with a capital M, that the New Testament authors are saying, this is how we're going to use Psalm 2. This is what it's pointing forward to, Jesus' baptism, his resurrection from the dead, God placing his stamp of approval on his son and saying, this is the king that we've been talking about. This is the king who was to come. But it's also interesting to see these other, passage, this, other parts of the passages that are being used in other places, and you see Christ taking those things over, knowing that those things are being pointed to him. I want to encourage you in that as you read various psalms to use that same approach, thinking through passages of Scripture, what you know of the person and work of Christ, even if it's the future work of Christ, which we see with the multitudes around the throne, as still in the future. But as you think through those things and as you're reading the Psalms and you're holding the Psalms up to the light in that way, I pray that Christ and the Messianic Psalms will, will be seen as that umbrella that covers all the Psalms, not just four of them, but all 150, that they're pointing forward to Jesus. And um, as I close that section, talking about Messianic Psalms, one of the helpful things that I read was, as you read Psalms 1 and 2, and they're this prologue to the book of Psalms, it's interesting that, that as you get to Psalm 2, it sets this trajectory of this king that is pointing forward to, this royal psalm that points forward to a king. And you can trace this thread through the Psalms of this king that's being looked forward to that you never see quite fulfilled in the Old Testament. And there's this expectation that grows and grows and grows for Christ. But it's also interesting to see that as this author pointed out in Psalm 3, right after the prologue to the book of Psalms, that it also sets the stage for righteous suffering. This king who, Psalm 3 is about David fleeing from, it, from Absalom. What king runs away from his son? But as you see that, and you see this king who's suffering, this king who's questioned, this, this king who's turned on by his own family, this also points forward to Christ, and you see that woven through the Psalms as well. Not only this divine king who's going to fulfill these great things that the kings in David's line never did, but also this suffering king as well, this man of sorrow, and, and you see that tied in with the Lamentations. And I hope that would be helpful to you guys as well as you're reading through the Psalms, seeing those two threads play back and forth. But we'd be remiss to, to close looking at Psalm 2 and Psalm 23 and again, not to gain encouragement from these for ourselves, because the whole goal of this series was not just to break apart Psalms, figure out how they work, put them back together again, and say, hey, we figured out that book. The whole purpose of this is to be able to understand the Psalms better, how they point forward to Christ, how they speak about Christ, his person, and his work, for encouragement for us, to spur us on in our prayer life so that we can worship God better, so that we can offer thanksgiving to him as we read a, a take like this, on Jesus in Psalm 2. I don't often think of Jesus with the nations as his inheritance, sitting with this rod of power, judging the nations. And how that ends is just so powerful. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I think that sums that psalm up. What an encouragement for us that we don't have to stand at the end of that rod judging people, being shattered like a pot, but that we take refuge in Christ, in this anointed son, this king that God has set up on his holy hill. And so my prayer for this class, not only today, but the other three weeks, 
is that we don't leave just knowing more about the Psalms, how to interpret them, that we could name six or seven different genres of Psalms, that we could talk about what it means that that it's a messianic psalm or anything like that, but that we can approach the psalms with confidence. The psalms become our songs because they point to Jesus. The songs become our songs because we can sing them with confidence. The psalms become our songs because we can look to them in times of personal trial. We can look to them in times of thanksgiving. We can sing hymns of praise for what God has done in history for us, his people, that we can take these songs as our own because God's given them to us for that purpose. And so I hope for you guys, this wasn't a dry exercise. I know for me, studying Psalm 23 and studying Psalm 2, just such a beautiful picture of Christ in two completely different ways. In one Psalm, you have Christ using that rod to gently guide his people along the way, even in the valley of the shadow of death. In the other, you see Christ using that rod in judgment against those who refuse to submit to his authority. Completely different pictures of Christ, completely different psalms, but both pointing to Jesus. And that's the beauty that we get as we begin to understand the Old Testament scriptures in this way. And so hopefully as we leave this place, you guys see this shepherd Lord from Psalm 23, that you're affected by that, that it causes you to worship him, that it gives you confidence in who he is, that as a believer and and, um, that, that you're this sheep that he's protecting but also you see this anointed king of Psalm 2 and that we are warned to take refuge in him or we see the consequences of not doing that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son. Thank you that we have scriptures from thousands and thousands of years from numerous different authors all pointing to your son in unique ways. We thank you that today we can see that tender shepherd heart of Christ leading and guiding his people. We thank you also that that we see Christ in his power sitting on a throne with multitudes around him and sitting in judgment as well. Father, I pray that our hearts would be spurred that we would heed the warning of Psalm 2, that we would take refuge in Christ, that we would worship him, that we would serve him. Lord, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you that they're not just the songs of David or one of the other authors, but there are songs as well. And thank you that ultimately they point us to Jesus. Amen.